Well, it's great to be with you this morning. I'm Jake Ledet, one of the pastors here. And uh, as I mentioned last week, we are just going, going to take some time to slow down in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, we just did verse 9 last week. We're just going to be on verse 10 uh, this week. And I think we'll have probably two or three more weeks in the Lord's Prayer. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm really hopeful and thankful for this time to do that. Uh, especially, you know, when we think about prayer, think about prayer in your life. If someone were just to ask you, hey, how's your prayer life? A uh, few people are like, man, I've, it's never been better. I'm one of the best prayers I know, and I c- couldn't pray probably any more than I do right now. Uh, I've, I've never heard that answer, um, but when it comes to our prayer life, it's often one of those uh, moments where we just naturally feel guilty about it. We just naturally feel like, I wish I prayed more. I wish I prayed more consistently. I wish when I prayed that it was more fervent and more passionate and more rich and more deep. Um, That tends to be how we think uh, about our prayer life. We long for it uh, to be that way, but it often uh, just isn't. And and one of the things that um, Jesus is doing here, even in the Lord's Prayer, is, is he's actually not addressing how often we pray. He's not addressing like, hey, you should pray for this amount of time. Or you should pray, you know, at this point in the day. Um, he's, not, he's not addressing that. that. That is talked about in the Bible. But here, Jesus is more addressing how we pray. He's saying, you know, this is the way you should be praying. Uh, these, these are the kinds of things you should be praying about. And this is the kind of God that you are praying to. That's what Jesus is kind of helping correct. As we talked about that last week, has just that hallowed be your name is probably a, a pretty significant correction to a significant amount of our prayers. Um, that, it, that Jesus is correcting how we pray, what we prioritize when we pray, the kinds of things we pray about, and he's reorienting our heart and our mind around this God who we pray to. That's what he's hoping to do in this pray then like this, showing us uh, how to pray. Um, I, I read, I, there's going to be a lot of quotes today. Not even all of them will be on the screen because there's just so many. Um, but I ran across this by J.R. Packer and it was just really helpful. He said, the vitality of prayer lies largely in the vision of God that prompts it. Drab thoughts of God make prayer dull. So again, like the kind of view, the view that we have of God when we go into prayer is obviously dramatically impactful in regards to how we pray. And that's what Jesus, that's why he's starting here. That's why he's starting with hallowed be your name. That's why it's a, a God-centered prayer from the very beginning because he's trying to direct our attention to this God and orient our heart and minds around the reality of who this God is as we come to him. Uh, and pray. That's what Jesus is doing in these moments. And so even if we think about the structure of the Lord's Prayer, I wanted to kind of just, if you look at it in the scriptures there, it's, uh, it's very structured. It's how we kind of know that um, it's, it's a bit of an aside. As you look through chapter six, it's like kind of this regular rhythm. Then all of a sudden we have this Lord's Prayer that goes in context, but it's much more elaborated on than, than anything else in chapter 6, which shows the emphasis that Jesus is putting behind uh, this prayer. Um, And we see the intro to the Lord's Prayer in verses 7 and 8 that we talked about a couple weeks ago, Jesus calling us out of hypocritical prayer 
out of a prayer that's focused on, us, focused on ourselves and into prayer that is actually reorienting our hearts and minds around God and who he is. We're not trying to impress him. We're not trying to impress others. We're looking to this God, and he is the one that is uh, impressing. He's the one we should be impressed by, not our prayers. Um, it's like, you know, we're on a beach looking at people, you know, gazing upon the beauty of a sunrise or a sunset as opposed to looking upon the sunrise or the sunset. That's often how we spend the Christian life is look at how, look at all of this, how awesome this looks as opposed to look at how awesome the reality of who our God is. And that's what Jesus is calling us out of. Um, I, I love what uh, Frederick Bruner talking about the, the Lord's Prayer as a whole he said, the Lord's Prayer stretches from the Father at the beginning to the devil at the end, from heaven to hell, and in between in six brief petitions, everything important in life. That's a good summation of the totality of the Lord's Prayer. It's just one of those passages that covers everything that we could almost think about. So the introduction is in uh, chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, focusing on God, and then we get three petitions about God. Uh, one we covered last week, two we'll cover uh, this week, and then we get three more petitions, four, depending on how you break up verse 13, uh, about humanity in verses 11 through 13, and then the conclusion, focusing on relationships. So we focused, introduction, focusing on God, and then the conclusion, focusing on how that should impact our relationships in verses 14 and 15. And so again, Matthew 6, 9 through 10, Jesus says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we're going to look just at verse 10 here, and here's the structure of our time. We're just going to ask some simple questions. Uh, we need to know what is the kingdom? So your kingdom come. Well, what is the kingdom that we're praying to come? Uh, and then what are we praying for when we're praying for the kingdom to come? So what is the kingdom? What is happening when we're praying for that? And we'll talk about some practical application of that. And then we'll do the same thing with what is God's will? What does Jesus mean by uh, your will be done? And then what are we praying for when we're asking for that to happen and, take some, and do some practical application as well. And then just like last week, um, I'm going to try to move quickly. I've got more to say than I did last week, unfortunately. Um, but I do want us to spend some time at the end, again, just praying. Um, I, I, one of the things about the Lord's Prayer is there's, there's no you know, individual pronoun. It's, it's our Father, it's, it's us, it's, it's, a, it's design, it, like Jesus is teaching us that when we come together, we should pray. Um, and sometimes we even forget that, that, like that counts. Like when you think about your prayer, I wanna, hey, how's your prayer life? Most of us think about that time in the morning that we spend praying alone, which is not a bad thing to think about, but Jesus is talking about when we're together. Jesus is instructing how we should pray together, and he's assuming, we, it's like, our, this, is, this is a corporate prayer that should be done together, so I want us to spend time uh, doing that and trust that the Lord will continue to meet us um, each week as we seek him through prayer. So, what is the kingdom? What is the kingdom of God? What does Jesus mean by the kingdom? If someone were to ask you, what is the kingdom? Speaking of, as Matthew talks about it, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, we're talking about God's kingdom here. Um, what would you say? And you don't have to say out loud right now. I actually really don't want you to because then it'd be awkward. Um, but if you were thinking about it, 
What would you say? What is it? It's, it's one of those questions, and it's actually one of those kind of theological, biblical points that there is often just a lot of confusion around. Um, and and we, we use the word kingdom in all kinds of ways, uh, but what, is Je- what does the Bible mean when it says kingdom? What does Jesus mean when he asks us to pray uh, for the kingdom? Um, what's the difference between the church and the kingdom? Is there one? Is God's kingdom a New Testament thing or an Old Testament thing or, or both? Is it attached to a geography or a nation? Um, if we're obviously going to pray for God's kingdom to come, it seems helpful that we would know what we are praying for. And here's just the, the simple answer to what God's kingdom is. As you think about uh, the, the word, the Hebrew word, the idea of kingdom is only used, I think, like, in the for, around 14 times in the Old Testament and over 200 times in the New Testament. Uh, and so when you look at the New Testament and you see God's kingdom being used, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, it just sim- simply means where God's redemptive rule is present, where he rules and reigns. So where God's redemptive rule has broken into the here and now and is ruling and reigning. That's what is meant by the kingdom of God. And so even in that, there's a difference between uh, God's kingdom and God's sovereign rule over all things. We know God rules over all things. He created all things. He rules over all things. But when the Bible talks about God's kingdom, he's ruling in a particular way. He's ruling people that have responded to this king and say, I am bowing down to this king and I am part of this kingdom. That, that is what God means uh, when it talks about his kingdom. Um, uh, Kevin DeYoung and I think Greg Gilbert wrote a really helpful book called uh, The Mission of the Church. And, and they, they do a pretty big chapter on the kingdom. And he, Kevin DeYoung says this. It says, so the kingdom of God then we may say is God's redemptive reign in the person of his son, Jesus the Messiah which has broken into the present evil age and is now visible in the church. So if you're just going to say it plainly, when Jesus is talking about the kingdom, it's God's redemptive rule of his people. God's redemptive rule of his people, how he leads, how he protects, how he guides, how he saves, how he's sanctifying. That's what God's kingdom is. Is But I think there's some clarifications I want to make about what God's kingdom isn't because, again, I think we can even take that and use it in some unhelpful ways. Um, I think about even just the, the reality of God's kingdom and the king and his reign and his rule is, is that he is the one that's holding this kingdom together. And that's a good corrective for us because often we are the ones thinking that we are holding our lives together, that we are holding our jobs together, that we're holding our relationships together. It was many months ago, and we pray as a staff once a week, and, uh, um, and we, I think it was just me and uh, Randy and Aaron at this prayer time, and one of the things that came up is just how often even we can feel tempted uh, to, like, we're the ones holding this church together. Like our, our energy or our effort or whatnot, that we're just tempted to buy in uh, to that lie. And now that lie is present for us, but that lie is present for all of us in all kinds of different ways. And it's important for us to realize that Jesus is the one that is the one building his kingdom. He's the one creating his kingdom. Um, and I'm going to read this lengthy quote that just does a good uh, uh, kind of scan through the scriptures of the way that the Bible talks about the kingdom. Um, this is again from um, 
what is the mission of the church. It says, when you look at the Gospels and examine the verbs associated with the kingdom, you discover something surprising. Much of our language about the kingdom is a bit off. We often speak of building the kingdom, ushering in the kingdom, establishing the kingdom, or helping the kingdom grow. But is this the, really the way the New Testament talks about the kingdom? Uh, George Eldon, Ladd, the man who put kingdom back on the map for evangelicals, didn't think so. And this is a quote uh, from his book where it says, the kingdom can draw near to men. And you can see all these references. It can come, arrive, appear, be active. God can give the kingdom to men, but men do not give the kingdom to one another. Further, God can take the kingdom away from men, but men do not take it from one another, although they can prevent others from entering it. Men can enter the kingdom, but they are never said to erect it or build it. Men can receive the kingdom, inherit it, and possess it, but they are never said to establish it. Men can reject the kingdom, refuse to receive it, or enter it, but they cannot destroy it. They can look for it, pray for its coming, and seek it, but they cannot bring it. Men may be in the kingdom, but we are not told that the kingdom grows. Men can do things for the sake of the kingdom, but they are not to said to act upon the kingdom itself. Men can preach the kingdom, but only God can give it to men. And so what we see from that lengthy quote, again, just to kind of emphasize that this is God's work that the kingdom is what God does, that when we're praying for the kingdom to come, we're praying for God to do what only he can do, that none of us can do on our own. Um, and the reality is, in this kingdom, there is this work to be done. We are to seek it. We are to pray for it to come. We are to be citizens in this kingdom. Um, there is a role for us to play, uh, but we err when we take on what God does he builds his kingdom. We are just invited into it. And here's another thing. So we don't build it. We don't make it happen. And the kingdom is not something new. Like we think of God's kingdom and we can have this New Testament mindset, but God's kingdom was present when he spoke creation into existence. That was his rule and reign in a perfect redemptive way. Before sin had even come into the world, that was God's kingdom in its perfection. God's kingdom is eternal. It is uh, forever. This is not something that just started or even just started uh, in the New Testament. It is incredibly old, it is eternal, and it will be forever. So it's from eternity past to eternity past. Uh, Isaiah 9, 7 speaks of it in this way, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Psalm 145, 13. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. When, when we feel this, when we believe this, that, again, the kingdom is not new, it's not something that just started with us or our generation. It's something that's internal. We can, we can have that long view of God's work. We can have that long view of just faithfulness day in and day out over time. So often we can even view the, the Christian faith or what we hope to accomplish in the Christian faith as kind of this get-rich-quick uh, scheme. 
Like, man, we just got to create a lot of momentum and a lot of energy and a lot of, like, man, no, we don't have to do that. Uh, we, we get the, the call to be faithful uh, and to, to seek and point to the king of this kingdom. Uh, that, that this has gone on long before we were ever around and, and will be, after we're done on this earth, will be uh, around forever. It's hard for our little minds to grasp that, but that's, it's not new. And so we don't have to treat it that way. And then also, it's not geographic, at least not yet. First uh, Peter 2, 11 and 12 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So again, sojourners and exiles. Hebrews eleven thirteen says the same thing. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. It's this, this reality that we're not attached to, like this kingdom is not geographic. It's not uh, bound by some uh, land that exists right now on earth. Um, but that on earth, that those that are a part of this kingdom actually live as if we are strangers and exiles here. That we're, the, we're like refugees gathered. We're like an outpost of this kingdom that is, is not fully present here. It kind of even brings into that idea of that already not yet. Like that's, we've talked about that a lot, and so I won't belabor the point, but the reality is that, that the kingdom has come. That's what Jesus says when he starts his ministry. The kingdom is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. It's ushered in, but we're not fully experiencing it. That's why we grieve this morning. That's why we grieve the brokenness of the world that's so present around us. That's why we realize that there's a place that isn't here that will be free of all of that, will be free of all brokenness, Uh, that there will be no more more need for the tears that we continue to shed. Uh, And so the, the fact that this isn't tied to some place here on earth gives us great hope that the the locale that this kingdom is tied to is one that we have yet to experience and yet uh, to realize. And that's, again, why Jesus is saying, let let it be your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Because as the kingdom is there, that's what we're praying for that reality to break into uh, the here and now. The reality is that sometimes this, the kingdom, and these are the parables that Jesus tells, that sometimes the kingdom seems so small and so minuscule, and everything that's not the kingdom seems so big. But Jesus is often telling parables of how what seems small right now will be the grandest thing that anybody has ever seen. And that's in reference to the kingdom of God. That's what we are praying for and what we're experiencing and what the kingdom uh, is all about. Again, so the kingdom of God the kingdom that we're desiring and praying for is for God's redemptive reign and rule. Um, and that's what we long to break in to the here and now. And so it's not geographic. It's not new. It's what God is doing. It's not something we build or create. And then when we pray for the kingdom, here's what we're asking for. We're praying for God to continue to bring to bring his redemptive rule to more and more people and for those who are part of this kingdom to seek it and to live like it. 
So when we say, God, bring your kingdom, we're praying for, there's one way that God brings his kingdom, and there's one way that God spreads his kingdom, and that's through more and more people bowing their knee to this king. That's the only way God's kingdom spreads. So as kingdom citizens, we're to live like, the, like this king. We're supposed to show the values of this king. We're supposed to care about justice and equity um, and uh, the poor and the needy. And we're supposed to care for anybody that we come in contact with, with our neighbor, with our brother. But the, that doesn't spread the kingdom. There is one way this kingdom grows, and it's by God redeeming and saving and spreading his redemptive rule throughout this earth throughout people that right now are not bending their, their knee to this king, that believe in a different king, that believe in no king at all, that believe in the king of themselves, that believe they have what they need within themselves, for them turning from that into the king of this kingdom. And so when we pray for God's kingdom to come, that, is, that idea is what should be filling our hearts and minds. That's what we're truly asking for. And that's what we should be asking for when we pray that. That's one of the ways, that's one of the things that happens when we pray for the kingdom to come. And then the other way is simply for Jesus to bring the fullness of his kingdom. That, that what we're experiencing, you know, in part right now, that we would long for Jesus to bring in its fullness. That he would come back. That he would redeem and save and heal fully and completely. And that we would get to enjoy eternity with him. And even as we pray that, we realize that every moment that he tarries is out of his grace and kindness that more might come to know and love and receive and be a part of this kingdom. That's what Jesus is doing. But again, that's one of the things we're praying for. We're praying for this moment in Matthew 25, 31 through 34. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory... And all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And so when we pray for the kingdom to come, we're praying for the kingdom to come in this moment that people might be invited in to this kingdom, and then we're praying for Jesus to bring it in its fullness. And so as we think about practical ways in our lives, how's, how, can, how can we pray for this? How can we, um, Jesus is giving us these general rules. The Lord's Prayer isn't just something we should recite. Again, although it's not bad to recite it, but Jesus is, is not saying pray exactly like this. He's saying, pray then like this. This is the, the kind of prayers that we should pray as Christians. And so when we think of God's kingdom coming, it, it's a little, it's fine, but it's a little insufficient just to pray that line. Like, what does it mean for us to pray that? And the families we live in, and the place we live in, and the experience we have, and the desires we have. Uh, so we should think about what does it mean to practically apply. Jesus is desiring that. He's like, pray then like this, where you're at in your context. And so what does this look like for you? You should consider that. I have some ideas, but you should consider that for yourself because you definitely should have ideas that I probably wouldn't have for you. Um, but one of the things, one of the ways we should pray about this, one of the ways we apply this to our lives is, again, for us to put down our little hammer in, in which we're trying to just build our own little kingdom and realize, okay, no, all this effort and all this energy to make my little empire here 
to build my little pile of stuff, uh, to, to make my name great, to invite people to be enamored with the kingdom of Jake, like the, the hammer that I have towards that, I need to lay down. And I need to say, God, your kingdom come. God, I want you to help me turn from my kingdom and help me turn to realize that your kingdom is the only one that really matters. And so that's one of the ways we can apply it to our lives. Um, and then another is just obviously that we would embody this kingdom's values of justice and truth and love and compassion and concerns for all, especially the vulnerable and the poor and the needy, that, that his church should be a picture so the church isn't exactly the kingdom. The kingdom isn't exactly the church. There's not a perfect overlap, but there is a ton of overlap in the sense of the church should be what it looks like to live in this kingdom. And so that we would be a people that embody the values of this king and his kingdom. Uh, that's what we should be praying for. That's what we should be desiring. That's what we should be spending our time doing. And then also we apply this by pointing to the king of this kingdom. I love what DeYoung again said about this king. He says, Jesus is not just king, he is suffering king. Not just King Jesus the Great, but King Jesus the crucified and resurrected. That, that we point to a king that was so kind to live and die and resurrect that we could be invited into this kingdom. Like we, we point to the totality of the character of this king. And that's what we do when we're asking for uh, the kingdom to come. We're realizing that there's something else to point to. There's someone else to point to that is not ourselves. And it is this king. So that we would do that. And that God would raise up men and women to seek his kingdom where it's actually not yet known even on this earth. We should have a global view of God's redemptive rule. One that involves our context and any context where people haven't heard of this king. Like we should desire for this king to be known far and wide. And really, even as you think about you live in a place where Jesus, where the gospel is just um, abundant in its accessibility. It's abundant in our ability to hear about it, to know about it, to know others that know about it. And so we can lose sight of the fact that there are um, just incredible populations on this earth that, have not, that don't have anywhere near that, that, have, that, will, that will be born, that will live, and that they will die and have never even heard the name of Jesus. And so as we think about his kingdom rule, as we think about him moving and working, as we think about being a citizen of this kingdom, we should long for anybody and everybody to know the name of this king who's been so good. And so if you have any desire for that kind of thing, if you have any inclination towards making this king's name known here or afar, that's something you should not ignore or something you should just trivialize. That's something you should press into. That's something you should consider. What does it look like to continue to make this king's name known? And we should pray for that and desire that. And we should desire that here uh, locally in our neighborhoods and our families. And we should desire that to the ends of the earth. Um, that God's name would be made known. Uh, think about how we mentioned this at the member meeting, but the elders at the end of August are actually going to Amman, Jordan, uh, in desires for Northbrook to, to consider and think about and seek God's wisdom and what it looks like for us to be a part of this kind of work. 
And I pray that the Lord gives me the end of my days here at Northbrook, loving and serving and leading this body. Uh, but I would be a fool to not be open to, God, what would you want to do with me? What would you want to do with my family? What would you want to do with us to the ends of the earth? Why would we leave that off the table for God to move and work in our lives in that kind of way? And so, would you consider how is God, where is God wanting you to be um, an outpost for this kingdom? So, that's God's kingdom. Now, God's will. What is God's will? Jesus actually answers this question explicitly in a scene from John 6. There's a lot that can be said about God's will. Theologically, we can think about um, God's desire and God's decree, what his, his will is over all of creation and how it continues to work. And then what God reveals his will to be in the scriptures, what he desires for people to come to him, to know him, uh, to follow him. We can think of it that way. Uh, and there's a lots of aspects of God's will. There's a lot of things that the scripture says about God's will, but they all kind of pale in comparison to what Jesus talks about God's will being uh, in John 6. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there real quick. Uh, it's in John 6. It'll be on the screen as well, but it's a lengthy passage if you want to read it. John 6, 25 through 40. Just the context real quick. Jesus has just fed 5,000, and they looked up and saw that he was gone, and they were hungry. Uh, and so they're like, where's the guy with all the food? Let's go find that guy and see what he's up to and see if he has any more food. And they begin a conversation in John 6 starting in verse 25. It says, When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you were seeking me not because you saw signs, because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do uh, that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. See, they're bringing it back to food. Again, um, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to him, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And then he goes on. This is where he gets to the nitty-gritty of what God's will is. For, if, for I have come down from heaven, and not to do my own will, but the will of the, him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And so it's so simple. What is the will of the Father? To believe in Jesus. Does that sound too simple? Does that sound even confusing in its simplicity? Let me complicate it for you. 
you're not really good at this. That's the complicated part. It's simple, and because it's simple, we think we're all really good at it. Because we prayed a prayer when we were a kid, because we prayed a prayer, and we're, we're a Christian, and we do love Jesus, we think, obviously, you would, do you believe in Jesus? Yes, done. No, it's not. Uh, there's so many aspects of our life, so many aspects of our, of our life that we walked into this place with right now that reveal how hard it is for us to really believe this deeply and fully and completely and continually. And, but this is the will of God, that we would continue to believe in him whom he sent. I love that. What must we be doing to do the works of God? Believe in him who he sent. Believe in Jesus, and you are doing the will of God. That is the will of God. And again, there's all kinds of other aspects of the will of God that are good and true, but they all fall under this reality. That the will of the Father is that we would believe in the redemption he has sent uh, to redeem his people, his creation. The, the, the creation he knows is broken and fallen and rebellious. He has made a way that we would uh, be with him forever. And it's his will that we follow that way. And that way is through Jesus, the Son of God. The reality is when we believe in this Jesus, the scriptures are clear, we follow his commands. Like when we believe in, when we we follow the will of God to believe in Jesus, Jesus says, those who love me, obey me. And so as we think about praying for the will of God, we're praying for that belief in Jesus to affect us and be real in such a way so that, again, even those situations we've walked into this room with where we're struggling and we're struggling to know what to do or how to do it, that we would seek and cling to and desire to believe deeply in who Jesus is and all he's done in such a way that we would be more and more courageous and willing to obey him in those very areas. And sometimes it's clear. Sometimes it's a clear reality that we're just, we sh- God asked us to do this, and we don't want to, and so we are doing something else. And sometimes it's muddier. Sometimes it's more ambiguous. Sometimes it's not as clear, but that belief in Jesus anchors us in that lack of clarity. That belief in Jesus anchors us in, because what we often do with like, even this, like asking God's will to come, we're acting as if God's will is just for this decision we need to make. Do I need to get this job or do I need to get this job? Do I need to move here or do I need to stay here? Do I need to marry this person or do I need to not? Do I need to date this person? Do I need to not? Do I need to go here tonight or should I not? Like we think of God's will in that way and the scriptures really don't talk about God's will in that way. The scriptures talk about believing in Jesus regardless of those decisions you make. Like, is there anything sinful in that decision? Well, okay, you're free to make it. But are you believing deeply in Jesus and walking with him and able to obey his commands as you make that decision? We get consumed with, like, this clear direction. God, I need to know exactly what to do. And God's told us, believe in Jesus. Believe in the one whom he sent. Um, And then, sure, go do that thing. Or not. But believe in me along the way. This is what we're praying for when we're praying for God's will uh, to be done. Praying for ourselves and others to lay down our opposing will and join with God's will of believing upon Jesus as our only hope and life and death. That's what we're desiring. How is God being worshipped in heaven? That's what we want to break in to the here and now, that as God's will is being perfectly performed in heaven, as God's kingdom is being perfectly realized in heaven, 
That's what we're asking to break in to the here uh, and now. And then the same way that perfect, joyful obedience to God is happening in heaven, that's what we want to break in into the here and now. One of the things I'm blown away, and I mentioned this before, but just one of the biggest surprises that as I think about heaven, one of the things I'm just incredibly shocked by is that I'm not going to sin. Like, I'm not going to be a sinner in heaven. Like, my desires are going to be perfect. <laughs> I just can't even fathom that. And that's one of the things that, that's, that's a reality in heaven that I'm going to get to enjoy, and it's a reality that I should pray breaks into now. That I should pray that my desires would be more aligned with what, with what God sees. And our struggles and our sufferings and our trials, sometimes we get so just distracted by that. We get distracted by just wanting to get free from this moment. Like, I'm struggling in this moment. I'm struggling with this sin. I'm suffering in this particular way. I want to move on from it. God, would you deliver me from it? And, and those things are fine to pray. But one of the things we should do, like, God, help me see what you see here. Help me desire what you desire here. God, those desires that are going to be in perfect, perfect in heaven one day, God, would you help me experience that? Would you help me desire that? Would you help me believe that? Would you help me walk in that more and more now until that day comes? That's one of the things we're, that's what we're praying for when we're praying for God's will to be done. That's why we pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As I was thinking about God's will being done one of the things I thought about how we could practically apply this reality to our lives is just simply to think about our relationships. Think about the relationships we struggle. Maybe think about a relationship that we have someone that we wish acted in a different way. Like we're struggling with how someone acts towards us or how they act in general. It feels wrong to think about in church already. You're like, I'm not sure I should be thinking this. Remember, I'm not supposed to desire bad things, and now I'm already frustrated and annoyed by this person that's not even maybe here. Uh, but let me ask you a question. As you think about God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven, like when something frustrates you about somebody, how often have you prayed for that very thing? How often have you prayed for that person about the very thing you struggle with? How often have you brooded about it? How often have you been frustrated by it? How often, even inwardly, have you complained over and over again? What if we just even that out with prayer? What if just the same amount of time you did those things, which I'm not encouraging those things, but what if just the same amount of time you spent praying for that person, that God's will would be done, that, that God would change them? You know, it's good to pray that God would change people. Now, obviously, you could use prayer as a weapon, and hopefully God works on you in that way, uh, but it's actually good to want for people what God wants for them. Um, and so when you see someone struggling in a particular way, when you see someone uh, sinning in a particular way, when you see someone, maybe, again, it's not even that clear, you just feel like something's off, you get to pray for that person. You get to pray for God's will to be done in their life. And when we pray for others, often what starts to happen, even really quickly, is God begins to change us in that process. As we start to actually pray for them and want good things for them and want change for them, we see perhaps how that very thing we're wanting for them, we, we struggle with as well. Uh, like, again, what J.I. Packer says, he says, to pray, thy kingdom come is searching and demanding 
for one must be ready to add and start with me. Make me your fully obedient subject. So again, that we would pray for others, and then as we do that, we would be open uh, for praying for God to, to do that same work uh, in us. Again, some relationships, just practical examples. How often do you outwardly or inwardly complain about your spouse's shortcomings? How often do you wonder if your roommate will ever change? How often have you complained about your parents' struggles? And how little have you prayed for all of those same things? Uh, I love this quote from Paul Miller. His, his book, A Praying Life, if you haven't read Paul Miller's A Praying Life, you should read it. It's one of the best Christian books I've read. It's about much more than prayer, and yet it's about prayer. Uh, in his book, uh, A Praying Life, he says, if you slow down and reflect, you'll begin to see whole areas of your life where you've been prayerless. I have in uh, my Kindle a note, slow down and reflect on this. And I wrote that years ago, and I was like, that would probably be good to do. Um, but just consider. And again, I think even if we were just to reflect on the, the areas of our life where we struggle or we're frustrated, and how many of those we've been struggling and frustrated and prayerless. Um, not praying for, God, would you make your name glorious here? Hallowed be your name. God, would you bring your kingdom here? God, would your will be done in this situation? And God, would you start with me in that? Would you, would you reveal, would you expose the many ways that I'm a, opposed, I'm after my own glory, I'm making my own kingdom, I'm about my own will? And would you do this work? Um, that's what we need God to do. There's so much overlap between these three requests uh, that they're just impossible to separate. Um, if you have one, you really have the rest of them as far as God's name being hallowed, his kingdom coming, his will being done. If his name is being glorified, then there is his kingdom and there's his will being done. Uh, if you have one of them, you have all of them. And if you don't have one of them, you don't have any of them. That's what he's correcting in the Pharisees. The Pharisees at least look as if they're obeying, but they're obeying for their own name. They're making their own name great. And so they're really not actually obeying at all. That's why at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he calls them workers of lawlessness. It would have been ridiculous for a Pharisee to hear that. Like, no one keeps the law better than I do. And Jesus is saying, you're actually not keeping the law at all. Um, and so these all have, like, you can't separate them. Uh, they, they all go together and work beautifully together um, in that way. Um, and although we will get to some specific prayers for ourselves over the next few weeks, um, all of life is really present in these first three God-centered prayer requests. There's no part of our life that this doesn't touch. And again, Jesus is going to instruct us on how to pray specifically. But even here, like we haven't, we're not losing out on those things when we've stayed here. We're not losing out on the specific requests we make when we focus on uh, God's name being glorified and his kingdom coming and his will being done. And so even as we take a moment to, to pray, you can feel great freedom to think about your needs. Like this, the, we, pray, we don't pray these grand prayers that are God-centered separate from our needs and separate from our struggles. We pray them in that context. 
We desire these things in those areas and in all areas and in, to the ends of the earth. That's, that's Jesus' grand view here, and it should be our grand view. Incredibly local and incredibly global. It's both of those realities. And so let's take a moment. You can take a moment to bow your heads and close your eyes. And, and I'm just going to read the Lord's Prayer over you a bit. And I'm going to just give us a moment to pray together. You can pray with someone here. You can pray out loud. You can pray by yourself. As a church, I want us to feel great freedom in these times. I know we don't typically. We come in feeling like you're here just to, you know, not necessarily feel free in these moments. But hopefully as a church, we can grow in this kind of freedom. We can feel free to pray however the Spirit's leading us out loud or silently by ourselves or with others. So let me read this whole prayer over you and feel free to allow the Spirit to direct you. I'll give you some prompts and then we'll just have some time to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As you spend time praying, you can pray for God's kingdom to come. To pray for more and more people to bow their knees and worship King Jesus. Consider asking God how he wants to use you to, to point people to this king. Whether it's in your current neighborhood, a new neighborhood, locally or globally. What does God want to do with you? And then just consider, where do you need, where do you feel the need for God's kingdom to come and will be done in your life? Is it a relational struggle? Is it a physical suffering? Part of Jesus bringing his kingdom is that on this earth he healed and he didn't heal everyone he saw, but he did heal. So you can pray for that as a part of his kingdom coming and breaking into the here and now. Just take some time to pray.
Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.